0: This is an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. I'm your host, Holly. Joining me as a co-host today is Maya. Hello. This is a non-profit, self-organized amateur podcast exploring the history of madness and the way that history continues to influence our lived realities. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. Our aim is to foster awareness and solidarity through the existence of a shared past. This episode contains mentions of sexism, racism, institutional violence, and ableism. We're going to start off by managing some expectations for this episode.
1: First of all, what are we talking about?
0: So we're talking about liberatory frameworks, which, as we're going to go into, is basically any ideology or kind of set of systems that seek to change society in fundamental ways to better the lives of people and especially marginalized people. So the first thing and maybe most important thing to acknowledge is that we are not experts in these topics. We are not. Um, We're going to be covering quite a suite of ideas, and so we just want to flag that. Also, some of these movements are rapidly evolving, and so we have to rely on personal experience to some degree. Much of what we're going to describe is not history, but it is happening in the present. This episode is going to come with a huge reading list, so don't just take our word for it. Go out and explore these resources and see what you find yourself.
1: That really is going to be the best way to learn about these movements. We're just hoping to get you started.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that bibliography is not going to be a comprehensive reading list. So why are we talking about this? We've been talking about history up until this point for the most part. Well, a lot of the history that we reviewed last season and at the beginning of this season involve harmful frameworks and unethical treatment, oppression, and the consolidation and use of power on mad people social movements often encompass histories of institutional harm and shared visions for change for a better world. Um, We also recognize that frameworks for social change can be dense, complicated, and involve lots of specific terminology. So it feels very worthwhile to visit the basics. So if you've never been introduced to these ideas, this is a place to get started.
1: Maybe you've heard them being thrown around
0: our hope is that you'll find a movement that speaks to you and that you maybe even consider getting involved.
1: And these movements aren't monoliths either, so they may show up differently in your communities and at your community level. And they're diffuse, they're socially built and constructed, and so it should be an exciting enterprise to figure out how they're showing up in your communities.
0: And if you are a more experienced organizer or you are a scholar of some of these ideas and we you feel like we kind of slipped up, you know, let us know. Reach out to us. We have our Instagram and our email at the bottom of every episode. Please provide us a source. Um, not because we don't believe you, but that makes making the corrections a lot easier. Or tell um, us
1: your experience.
0: Yeah, or give us your experience um, and we will issue an edit. And with that, on to the episode. Great so there are other frameworks that we're going to identify and these are kind of a mixture of our terms and some other people's terms kind of trying to unify some some concepts here um and we're going to identify the oppressive framework a liberal framework and a liberatory framework so for our purposes today an oppressive framework is any set of laws systems or social norms that seek to prevent a certain demographic from fully participating in society, or seeks to harm that group for the benefit of another group. And so, like, we might see sexism, or racism, or ableism as oppressive frameworks. This is kind of the collective, systemic, oppressive approach to try to control a group and extract their labor, or extract their freedom, or extract whatever it is for the benefit of somebody else.
1: And I think we're talking about frameworks in part because we're thinking about systems of ideas rather than necessarily focusing on institutions themselves. We're talking about what are the ideas that fuel those institutions when they carry out acts that have racist or sexist outcomes. Yeah.
0: How do these people justify themselves basically? Right. So the next one that we want to acknowledge that we're not going to talk very much about is a liberal framework. And for our purposes today, that's any set of laws, systems, or social norms that seek to include marginalized demographics into society as it exists, but does not aim to change society itself to the comfort of those in power.
1: So a seat at the table.
0: It's a seat at the table, but you don't get to choose what's on the menu. You know, society has not fundamentally changed. You just are given some platitudes. Versus a liberatory framework, which we're defining here today as ideals that seek to change society at fundamental levels in order to better the lives and conditions of all people, especially through the lens of a certain demographic experience and intersections. If liberal frameworks is a seat at the table, liberatory frameworks is flipping the table over.
1: I think that's a good mental image.
0: Yeah. Flipping over the table and reassembling everything so that everybody actually has what they need.
1: Mm -hmm. And it is fully participatory in defining and co-creating the conditions that define their lives.
0: It's giving agency back to people who have not had agency.
1: So what are we going to talk about first?
0: So I think the one that's most directly relevant to what we've been talking about, which is disability justice.
1: And this is a framework that I think is really an inspiration to us in the work that we're doing.
0: Mm -hmm. It's definitely a lens that we try to apply to the work that we're doing. So when we're saying, well, this was an oppressive system, this was a liberatory system in the history that we've talked about. This is what we've had in the back of our mind this whole time. For a brief definition, disability justice seeks to create an accessible world full of rest and connection. To remove barriers between people, regardless of their ability, this ideology also targets institutions that systemically oppress and seclude disabled people. And so, when did this start? This is the term disability justice is actually relatively new. It's Mm. as new as 2005. Wow. Coined in 2005, as a result of conversations between disabled queer women of color. The goal was to get existing social justice movements to be more fully engaged with disability issues. It was built in contrast to previous movements such as the Disability Rights Movement and Disability Studies. Disability justice provides a more radical lens targeting all the ways that institutions and societies intersect with disability, not just the intersections that white, able-bodied activists find convenient. And so to use some of the terminology that we were using before, these women's argument was that the frameworks that were in place, the disability rights movement and disability studies were liberal movements. They were liberal frameworks. And what they said is they wanted more than that. They wanted to flip the table and they wanted a society that was going to be more inclusive.
1: And I think it's really important to call out that we're talking about the brilliance and innovation of queer, disabled women of color. Um, I think that people who exist at intersections, especially, you know, as white people talking about this issue, um, I think it's really important to name that, you know, those multiple intersections of identity create its own comprehensive experience. It doesn't feel like a coincidence that that's fueling this really beautiful movement.
0: So how does this movement relate to madness? Well, first of all, disability justice is an umbrella term that includes sanism and ableism.
1: And can you tell us what sanism is really quick?
0: So sanism is the discrimination or oppression given to people with madness. Mm -hmm. And then ableism usually refers specifically to physical disabilities, but it's not limited to that. As we've talked about before, the mind-body divide is very permeable. Yeah, um, Ill,
1: ill-defined, perhaps even impossible to separate the yeah, two. Yeah,
0: you can't you can't fully separate the two, and so ableism applies to sanest issues as well. It it also is relevant because even just talking about physical disability. Some people with madness are disabled through their experiences, through their symptoms, through their trauma. Sometimes mental illness lives in the body, and there are people who experience their mental illness very physically, and so disability justice seeks to address that. Also, some mental illnesses um, legally count as disabilities, One in eight people in the world live with a mental disorder of some kind, and many of those people would count as disabled, Um, and that was pre-COVID.
1: We suspect that number has gone up.
0: Yeah, for the amount of people who are experiencing long-term COVID, welcome, we invite you into this space. People with disabilities experiencing mental duress at five times the rate of their so-called able-bodied counterparts. So these mental and physical issues are so intertwined with one another. What solutions does this ideology propose? 10 Principles of Disability Justice. And I'm just going to list them very, very briefly, just for the sake of time.
1: I highly encourage you to read the original, though.
0: Yeah, read the original. You can find the original at sinsinvalid.org, and then they've got a specific blog where they talk about these. Intersectionality is the first principle. Leadership of the Most Impacted. Anti-capitalist politic commitment to cross-movement organizing, recognizing wholeness, sustainability, commitment to cross-disability solidarity, interdependence, collective access, and then the last one is collective liberation. And so that is the 10 principles of disability justice run through at lightning speed. So another important concept within disability justice is the social model of disability. Society and the lived environment need to be molded to the needs of people in society, regardless of ability, rather than the medical model that says that people need to be cured before they can fully participate in society. Disability justice says we will model your environment to you so that you can participate in your own life.
1: Trying to understand that everyone has inherent worth and... Mm -hmm. That when we have collective opportunities to create the circumstances that shape others, we need to take that responsibility really seriously and remove barriers so that all of our people can be with us.
0: Yeah, and there are activists that even go as far as to say that it's the way that our environments are constructed that create disability.
1: Through that lens, disability doesn't reside in the body or in health, Um, it resides in society that disabilizes people
0: no disorder or disability is too much to live with if your access needs are met designing society for these access needs can make everybody's lives better and now we're going to go into a a set of questions that we have for all of our ideologies which is yes we understand your program we understand the ideas that you're putting forward Um, we understand how you want to flip the table but how are you going to address specific issues like fascism, capitalism, and racism?
1: Yeah, what does your movement have to say about these critical conditions? And where are the intersections between these movements? That's what this is meant to help us draw the lines around. Yeah. So how does this ideology address fascism?
0: So disability justice opposes fascism um, because it represents a strict hierarchical society, And has a long history of killing disabled people.
1: Fascism, that
0: is. Fascism does.
1: Yes. So it's really meant to counter that worldview.
0: Yeah. Fascism also has a lot of machismo and warrior culture, which we've talked a little bit about Mm -hmm. in previous episodes and how that's tied to ableism. So disability justice naturally opposes that as well. It's just diametrically opposed. You can't have disability justice and fascism. They, They don't mix. How does this ideology address capitalism? Once again, diametrically opposed. You cannot have disability justice and capitalism at the same time.
1: And when you go back to the Ten Principles, anti-capitalism is one of them. So it's right in there.
0: Um, Yeah, it's disability justice would envision an entirely new economic model. And I imagine that that economic model varies from person to person. But the general idea is that nobody would be overexerting themselves because they can't pay rent.
1: Which has a lot to do with people's individual experiences of both their disability and ableism. Um, There's so many people who are under that pressure. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and especially disabled people. You know, everybody provided for in one way or another. How does this ideology address racism? Disability justice is very intersectional, so that means that it takes into account a lot of other demographics and identities Identities. within its own movement, and it has many leaders of color within the movement. The definition of ableism is very intertwined with constructions of race going back to slave plantations, which we've talked a little bit about on this show. Disability justice is anti-racist. And to conclude our discussion of disability justice, I have a quote um, by Aurora Levins Morales. Quote, There is no neutral body from which our bodies deviate. Society has written deep into each strand of tissue of every living person on earth. No body stands outside the consequences of injustice and inequality. What our bodies require in order to thrive is what the world requires. If there is a map to get there, it can be found in the atlas of our skin and bone and blood in the tracks of neurotransmitters and antibodies. End quote.
1: We should do more quoting on the show. That's so beautiful. Yeah,
0: we really should do more quotes. I thought that that one was really nice.
1: So look to the atlas of your body to find your path to a better world. So what do we have up next?
0: Speaking of utopia, (laughs) (laughs) um, we have social ecology. Social ecology is a radical ecological method that seeks to understand the relationships between human nature and non-human nature and apply that to a liberatory framework.
1: You're going to have to walk me through that a little bit more, but I think we're going to get there. (laughs) I'm already confused.
0: So it is a way of understanding nature with humans as a part of that nature.
1: So, okay. So inclusive, an inclusive definition of nature rather than an oppositional definition.
0: Yeah. It's not civilization against nature. Like we've Mm. seen so many times in previous episodes. Social ecology is the idea that humans and human civilization are nature are natural, but we have fallen out of line with non-human nature and ecology. We're kind of running on our own time um, and on a capitalist time specifically
1: Right. So what would it change about the way that we see our world if we were a part of that whole instead of an aberration from it?
0: What it sees is basically an a of human society and non-human nature and that we would incorporate ourselves into our landscapes and our environments in a way that we haven't been doing for a while. And that we wouldn't have a capitalist mode of production driving...
1: Access to our basic needs.
0: Access to our basic needs.
1: So how did this start?
0: It was founded in part, there was a larger community around this, but the person who gets the most credit is, is uh, the Jewish American theorist Murray Bookchin. It pulls from ecological, anthropological, communist, and anarchist understandings of the world. It pushed towards a radical reimagining of the world through anti-capitalism, anti-fascism, and utopianism. And utopianism is generally the idea of envisioning the best world that you can imagine. The most equitable, the most easy to live in. So it's based on ecological, Marxist, anarchist, feminist, and other types of movements as well. So what does it have to do with madness? This seems like it's a little bit out of left field. (laughs)
1: Did you just want to talk about Murray Bookchin? Is that how we got here? I do
0: like to talk about (laughs) Murray Bookchin and social ecology, but I want for people in the audience to think about how the environment contributes to madness. Stress can aggravate and even cause all kinds of mental disorders and trauma. So the utopianism of social ecology helps us envision a world that, say... Uh, doesn't have traffic, that has competent public transportation, that has clean air, that has lively commons that are accessible, um, that has food readily available, that has accessible streets, you know, a world where everybody is cared for. Solar punk is also great for this. Solar punk is a tradition that kind of comes out of social ecology that would encourage people to look up. But social ecology is so much more than daydreaming. Um, It's also a critical lens to examine society, history, prehistory, hierarchy, and ecology. This critical lens helps us to dissect the world around us um, and better understand it. It also helps us to understand where we have come from and where we might go. The one trick with social ecology is that it's more of a methodology than it is a practice. That means it's up to the reader to imagine for themselves what a better world would look like and how to make trade-offs, which is maybe the whole point. Social ecology is a very powerful tool, but without intersecting with other liberatory ideologies, one person's utopia might be another person's dystopia.
1: So that's an important thing to keep in mind, is like a collectivism in how this is approached. Individual envisioning or daydreaming as you say is not the point or the intended outcome
0: how does this ideology tackle big issues how does this uh deal with fascism social ecology sees itself not only as opposed to fascism but provides scholarly critique of right-wing and even liberal movements like when it comes to fascism social ecology is not messing around like it is there is volumes of texts and essays and books around this issue
1: which makes it interesting to think about the social ecological view of fascism as kind of reinforcing that boundary between human and nature
0: yeah and so social ecology and fascism are ideologically opposed they they believe completely opposite things about nature fascism wants to dominate nature Um, And social ecology wants to incorporate itself into it and live harmoniously with it.
1: What about capitalism?
0: Social ecology largely sees hierarchy and capitalism as the driving focus of climate change and human misery.
1: So not excited?
0: Not excited. (laughs) Very opposed. Um, How does this ideology address racism? Social ecology has historically addressed racial issues tangentially.
1: So not its focus. Not its
0: focus. But in recent decades has incorporated racial issues more eagerly um, and sees the domination of human by human as the basis for human domination of nature, which is a really key concept and worth meditating on. Quote, what compels me to fight this society is, of course, outrage over injustice, a love of freedom And a feeling of responsibility for perpetuating and enlarging the human spirit, its beauty, creativity, and latent capacity to improve the world. I do not care to come to terms with an irrational society that corrodes all that is valuable in humanity, that eats away at all that is beautiful and noble in the human experience.
1: And that's Murray Bookchin.
0: And that's Murray Bookchin.
1: That is an ethos of non-acceptance and (laughs) non-passivity.
0: All right, moving on to feminism. What is feminism? Feminism is a huge topic. It's as a movement, at least in the U.S. and and, and Europe, the West. It's been around for a while.
1: Yeah, I mean, depending on when you cite its origins, um, we could be talking about centuries.
0: Yeah, so it's a big topic. We're not going to cover it all here. There was a lot of history I kind of had to gut from this episode, even though I wanted to get into it, but it just... uh, This whole thing wound up being too long. If
1: you're yearning for more, though, we'd be excited to hear it.
0: So feminism could generally be described as a movement aimed at the disillusion of patriarchy, equality for women, promotion of sexual liberation, reproductive rights and the prevention of sexual violence with intersections into queer liberation, black and indigenous liberation and liberation of men from patriarchy.
1: A kind of rescue operation.
0: That's not a bad way to put it.
1: So how did how did we get here with feminism? How did it start?
0: Yeah. So women's movements are much older than Our focus, kind of like with disability justice, like we've been talking about this since we've had these categories of people.
1: Yeah, we trust that people are engaged actively in their own experience and their own liberation, whether or not it's documented.
0: Yeah, wherever there is oppression, there is resistance. You just have to look for it. In the United States, specifically, early women's power movements were associated with abolition movements to abolish slavery in the 1830s. Many women at the time saw the plight of black enslaved people and drew parallels to their own situation, which is a little iffy.
1: Yeah, tenuous to say the least. And <laughs> thus launching a long history of problematic white feminism.
0: Yes. Ugh.
1: <laughs> uh, 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 can't Go get on. Into
0: it. <laughs> This momentum would carry through various movements into so-called first-wave feminism, which was followed by second-wave feminism, which was followed by third-wave feminism, each kind of building on the last one. These movements focused on voting rights as well as liberating women at home, reproductive rights, um, sexuality, and domestic violence, not to mention um, how women were perceived and able to access the workplace these movements were largely led by white feminists. But now we come to in the modern day, the fourth wave of feminism, which focuses largely on women's empowerment and combating sexual violence. It is also notably the most inclusive in terms of sexual orientation, race and gender, including men. Seeing all of these people as victims of patriarchal structures, though the inclusion of disabled people has been spotty and tenuous. So what does this have to do with madness? Gender has been long intertwined with madness, from the inception of hysteria to gender dysphoria still being in the DSM-5. Women were often stripped of their rights and placed into asylums, or given lobotomies solely on the word of a man. Women and queer people have historically been vulnerable to the mental health care system.
1: Othering in oppressive societies begets oppressive harm.
0: Yes. So what are its solutions? Feminism looks to protect all of these individuals and identities and intersections from patriarchy, as well as men who often suffer the mental pressures of having to conform to patriarchal standards themselves. Feminism also envisions a world where human sexuality can be expressed more freely and healthily, um, intersecting with queer issues, Feminism also seeks to free everybody to express their gender in a way that feels best to them. So how does this ideology handle big issues? How does this um, ideology address fascism? Fascism is essentially super patriarchy. So feminism is naturally opposed to it. That said, there are some air quote feminists... Who cite things like girl power or who want to be girl bosses who get co-opted into fascist movements as spokeswomen and are usually discarded when they are no longer useful. How does this ideology address capitalism? Newer more progressive forms of feminism address capitalism as a destructive force but to varying degrees. Feminism has certainly been co-opted by various commercial industries.
1: And there are branches of feminism that, you know, are really seeking for, like, inclusion and leadership in the systems that exist.
0: Yeah, so it's very, it's kind of a hodgepodge across the movement.
1: And it's a, and it's vast, right? Like, non-monolithic, like we were saying. So there are a lot of people who consider themselves feminists. Mm -hmm. And they have a range of ideas about the economic structures and political structures as they exist.
0: Yeah, and it's worth saying that some of the most vehement anti-capitalists that I've met have been feminists. It's yeah. there, but once again, it's it's kind of a patchwork of, of people and ideas. How does this ideology address racism? As we said earlier, like earlier form of feminism got a failing grade on incorporating people of color modern forms of feminism handle race remarkably better than waves in the past but there is still work to do feminist movements led by um, BIPOC people and intersectional feminism have a lot to say about how racial issues intersect with feminism and for our summary quotes we have Audre Lorde
1: Mm.
0: quote I am not free while any woman is unfree even when her shackles are very different from my own,
1: Audrey Lord would be a great thinker to um, reference, refer to, um, read more, read more of, to better understand experiences of women of color, people of color, in relation to feminism in the '70s and '80s, and also to better understand intersectional feminism.
0: All right, anti-capitalism. What is it?
1: Not capitalism. It's not capitalism.
0: (laughs) Um, Capitalism, this is kind of a broad one. Any form of ideology that's opposed to capitalism. Um, It usually comes from different strains of socialism, communism, or anarchy.
1: And uh, what is capitalism?
0: (laughs) (laughs) How do I succinctly describe capitalism? Capitalism.
1: An exploitative and competitive economic system that is seeking to ever expand.
0: Yeah, seeking to ever expand, and also the focus is on capital and money and Mm. goods. Profit. Profit, as opposed to, yeah, profit above all.
1: Mm.
0: That's probably the best way to say it, is profit above all, which means that, you know, if I could just make a case against capitalism, (laughs) if you'll permit me... Oh, um, carry on <laughs> you know if if it's if it's profit above all then that means that you will never be a priority sobering yeah you never can be a priority in the face of profit
1: so anti-capitalism is not that
0: yeah so where does it come from each ideology that becomes opposed to capitalism, has its own unique history, but generally they emerged as competing ideas um, in the face of capitalism itself. Um, For reference, early forms of capitalism emerged in the 1600s. Um, Indigenous opposition and critics of capitalism um, began essentially upon contact with European economic systems. So there are like, were indigenous anti-capitalist groups during the Enlightenment.
1: <laughs> they were on top of it.
0: They were on it. So again, wherever there's oppression, there's opposition. You just got to look for it. Um, how does this ideology intersect with madness? Um, kind of like what I was saying before. Like You can never be a priority so long as profit is valued above all else. Um, Capitalism is not a fair and equitable system for disabled people especially, or just most people generally. Lots of people can't keep up with the demands of a 40-hour work week, let alone um, if they don't have the accommodations that they need. Capitalism has been disastrous for the disabled community specifically. So what solutions does it propose? Anti-capitalism seeks to oppose capitalism. And replace it with more equitable systems. Though what those systems look like varies from person to person. If you talk to a communist or you talk to an anarchist, you're going to get very different answers.
1: And you're probably going to get confused if you're me, but we're doing our best.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So how does this ideology tackle big problems?
1: Like fascism?
0: Like fascism. Um, Some anti-capitalists see capitalism and fascism as linked ideologies, and with, which is a topic for another day. <laughs>
1: we're we're already doing a lot that's, out here. That's,
0: that's a different podcast. And so they will oppose both adamantly. What does it want to do about capitalism? It wants to abolish it. We did, that's what we've been talking about. Smash. <laughs> <laughs> um, how does this ideology address racism? It does not address race directly, but it has intersections. Sometimes uh carries the slogan No war but class war, which implies Um that all oppression in the world can be understood through class struggle, which is con- controversial. Um many...
1: Anti-capitalist neglecting to fully incorporate the specific experiences of race. I've understand to be annoying. <laughs> <laughs>
0: A quote from Mark Fisher, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism.
1: That feels true.
0: Yeah. And... <laughs> I can
1: imagine the end of the world right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, which is part of the reason why I focus so much on utopianism, because it helps you imagine this other world like it's a muscle you have to train.
1: Social ecology really prompts that kind of reflection. Yeah. So, And without practice, it's very difficult to do anything
0: yeah like i i see a field that's a monocrop and i em- envision what it would look like to put a food forest in there and make it so that anybody could just go in and get apples whenever they wanted
1: when holly's staring in his face you know that she's thinking about food forests <laughs> 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 or at least eight times out of ten uh-huh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right moving right along anti-racism what is it Anti-racism is a collection of ideologies all aimed at uprooting systemic racism and opposing racial prejudice. So this is kind of like anti-capitalism. This is a wide range of ideologies that are all contributing to this framework. Um, Where did it come from? Anti-racism comes from a variety of backgrounds, like I was just saying, including indigenous, black, Asian, Latino, Middle Eastern frameworks and perspectives. How does it relate to madness race and madness at least in the west are constructed together from pathologizing enslaved people trying to get to freedom to phrenology to using schizophrenia as a cudgel to break up the civil rights movement the history of madness in the US is the history of race relations. So what does it propose it proposes the deconstruction of race whiteness specifically and colonialism. There are a diversity of ide- ideologies as to how to get there.
1: So we might think about this as kind of a, an umbrella term under which a lot of other movements could yeah. coexist.
0: Yeah. Like, well, we're going to talk about black liberation here in a second, and you could put black liberation under this umbrella.
1: Mm-hmm. So how does this ideology handle the, the big ideas that we've been talking about? So fascism first.
0: So, fascism is kind of the er ur- example of segregation and apartheid. Anti racism is opposed to fascism and has varying responses and tactics towards it. How does it address capitalism? Most forms of anti racism see capitalism as a colonizing force and are therefore opposed to it. And some are just explicitly anti capitalist in the anti capitalist tradition. How does it address racism? take a guess <laughs> it's opposed it, it, it wants it's
1: fundamentally to, opposed yeah,
0: yeah it wants to deconstruct race
1: and it exists in response to racism as an effort to confront the poisonous ideas that are inherent in racism and mm-hmm. racist ideology
0: so for our quote uh this is from Tan Nahasi coates quote but race is the child of racism not the father and the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy and physiognomy so much as one of hierarchy difference in hue and hair is old but the belief and preeminence of hue and hair the notion that these factors can correctly organize a society that they can signify deeper attributes which are indemnable this is the new idea at the heart of these new people who have been brought up hopelessly, tragically, deceitfully, to believe that they are white. End quote.
1: So now you're talking about black liberation, which is a movement that you cited as potentially being able to house itself under the umbrella of anti-racism.
0: Yeah, and so this is specific to the black diaspora of the United States. It has a strong focus on intersectionality and can be seen as a broad social movement. So where did it come from? Early black liberation efforts began um, around the same time as European chattel slavery. Again, where there's oppression, there is opposition. And it has ultimately been around since racism itself, notably in Europe in the 1500s. It was also inspired by the work of abolitionists, Many would say that the abolitionist work is not yet done. Um, Movements in both the United States and South Africa saw notable upticks in the 1960s. Here we see the rise of civil rights movements, um, the Black Panther Party, and the FBI operations to dismantle both of them. The Black Panther Party were largely intersectional and were specifically involved in disability struggles for their duration. Wow. This included fighting psychiatric abuse. Lastly, the, and most recently, we have the Black Lives Matter movement, which is still ongoing. So what does it have to do with madness? Aside from the Black Panther Party showing up for, to, you know, to address psychiatric abuse, is just one more way that they were just so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Uh, so race and madness in the West were constructed together so again from pathologizing enslaved people trying to get to freedom to using schizophrenia to try to break up the civil rights movements the history of madness in the u.s is also the history of black liberation so what solution does it propose similarly to anti-racism it proposes a deconstruction of race whiteness colonialism and capitalism but also has intersections of gender class and sexuality It um, has consistently called for police accountability, if not straight-up abolition of the police. How does this handle big issues? How does it address fascism? It opposes fascism, especially white supremacist groups like the police. Um, How does it address capitalism? It It sees capitalism as a larger colonial project and should be dismantled. And how does it address racism? It looks to free black people from oppression of white supremacy in all of its forms. Um, And I have a quote here from Malcolm X. Quote, If violence is wrong in America, violence is wrong abroad. If it is wrong to be violent defending black women and black children and black babies and black men, it is wrong for America to draft us and make us violent abroad in her defense. If it is right for America to draft us and teach us how to be violent in defense of her, then it is right for you and me to do whatever is necessary to defend our own people right here in this country. And so that's it. That's all of our liberatory frameworks.
1: So, Holly, what are you still processing?
0: I'm still... I'm honestly still processing kind of some of the more racist aspects of some of these historical traditions. And the way that, like, race was not incorporated or thought of. And it was kind of a gap in some of these thinking and being very grateful that that's been incorporated more recently but still understanding that we have some work to go and
1: that there's baggage and movements that may speak to us.
0: Yeah, and even thinking about like our own project and wondering if we've done enough to incorporate around race and things like that and
1: something I think we should definitely be talking and thinking about all the time.
0: Yeah. What about you?
1: I think that is a really core issue to process kind of as we think through all of these movements Um, I think I'm still processing kind of as we go through the broad strokes of these ideas where are people centered and how can we employ these ideas towards changes that affect people you know how do we Mm. bring these ideas into our lived realities Um, because I think that you know, this ex- in exchange and interchange of ideas is so important. And um, I want to see a rigorous application of these ideas with how we relate to each other at the individual level and kind of the the positive that we're invoking as we try to envision an actual future.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe we should start a podcast to get the word out.
1: <laughs> yep. I guess that's what we're trying to do. (laughs) Um,
0: What's your takeaway or is that kind of your takeaway?
1: I think um, I'm really excited to learn and hear more about social ecology. And I think my takeaway and an important point that we're trying to emphasize in this episode is that these movements have a lot to say to one another and they have a lot to say to some of the most critical issues of our time so thinking about how the work that we're doing relates to other people feels like a really critical check to make sure that your liberatory framework isn't somebody else's ongoing oppression
0: yeah i think that that's really really important
1: what are you feeling inspired by
0: oh um i'm feeling inspired by how much work people have been putting into these like compiling this reading list which again like if you've never checked the show notes before, today is the day to check the show notes because there's so many resources there and there's so many places to get started. It's amazing the amount of work people have put into this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and and it you makes... can read
1: their words. Like you can go to like the elders, the movement, you know, like the movement participants, you can, you know, like you can go online, like there's some, you know, you can go to where the work is happening and you can hear directly from them. And that's got to be the coolest thing ever.
0: Yeah. It's really, really amazing. You can also go on places like YouTube and they just have lectures up. Like if you can't afford the book, one, libraries are amazing resources. And two, you can go online and look up the author and then there will be a lecture by them and you can listen to the lecture. And they'll talk about their book.
1: We all have learning that we can be doing that's oriented towards action.
0: And finding community and finding like-minded people.
1: Yeah. It's what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah. All right. I'm Holly. I'm Maya. This has been the Bedlam Book Club. This has been an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This show was produced, written, and created by Maya and Holly. Intro and outro music was by Coma Studio. Check out our bibliography in the show notes. Make sure to practice self-care and contact local resources if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency. Take care of each other out there.